Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. Vortex Nation, now we're going to call this a listener's special. Because every time we have an episode, we're like, hey, you know, shout out to us on YouTube, Instagram, whatever. We'd love to hear back from you. And, you know, one listener in particular took us up on that. And he's actually sitting across the table from me right now with his dad, who came up to visit us at Vortex. We're in the range right now. If, I, if you're watching on YouTube and the cameras are on this time, then you'll, you'll know that already. But we had a podcast a while back that was World War II-ish guns. We had Ian, Adam, Ryan on there to talk about some cool old, old firearms from that era. And Nick, across the table from me, he commented on YouTube and, and actually pointed out one slight error that we had in there, which we actually asked people to, uh, to comment on, which was when we were talking about the grenade launchers on the M1 Grand? Yep. Is that what it was? And uh, we weren't exactly sure how it was that they were firing them out of the rifle. They, they were essentially, uh, you know, back then they didn't have some kind of like an under-the-barrel grenade launcher. They actually used their, their regular barrel. We weren't sure if it was uh, how that was actually then projecting the grenade out. And Nick answered that question for us. And lo and behold, we wound up finding a bunch of other cool stuff about Nick and his dad. So before I do too much introducing for them, we'll have them introduce themselves, say a little bit uh, about what they do and how they got to this point. Again, like I said, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll probably see him right now with a plethora of incredible firearms from that era behind them. But uh, anyway, how about uh, Nick? You want to start off? So I'm Nick. Uh, both my dad and I are based out of Illinois. We've been a f- big fans of mainly guns for a long time, but World War II guns, he's been collecting them for a long time. I started when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I loved them, and then it turned into a big hobby. Oh, started yeah. started seeing everything, and that's basically what I do, and I'm always looking up something different, finding something new, learning new things. And we also both do reenacting, military reenacting, World right, War II. Right, right. Fun hobby, um, learn more history every day. So it's always a fun thing to do yeah. when you're out there. Well, yeah, it's super cool. And as, as, even as we got to emailing a little bit back and forth, you're explaining some of the cool stuff that you guys got going on, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it here. And uh, Ray, so you're you're involved in this. You kind of probably got Nick started, didn't oh, yeah. you? Yeah. yeah it's, it's a good thing when you can get your son interested in what you're in. You know, I know yeah. I were always, wasn't always interested in what my father was into, uh, but he's come to know a heck of a lot more than I do. And he, he does a lot more of the research than I care to, but he's really into it, so I'm proud of him. You guys were saying you hit up gun stores quite often. Oh, yeah. How often? I'm probably three to four times a week. It's that bad. <laughs> it's going to be slowing down because I got some new big purchases recently, so that will be slowing down quite a bit. All right. Yeah, okay. yeah and I, 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 I've said that before, too. Yeah, I travel for work, <laughs> so I hit them all across the country, all 50 states. So That's, that's got to help for sure. Now, uh, do gun stores, like, alert you, like, hey, we got a hot one, come on in? So I have a funny story on that. I used to work at... A Shields, down where we're located at, and um, I left there. I now am friends with their rifle manager, and when I'm in there quite a bit, he's always has something behind the scenes. He pulls out, he's like, I got something to show you. And he's probably pulled that three or four times on me, and I've ended up buying the rifles <laughs> that day. It's pretty bad. Oh, man. Man, knowing a guy is good, but yes. it also can be bad. So, well, let's talk about let's talk about first... There's something on the table right now that is just incredible to even look at, and it's also essentially what we were talking about when uh, when you mentioned in to to kind of correct us on that one piece, which is that 
grenade launcher portion of the uh, of the old rifles back then that the Allies were using. Now, what is on the table in front? There's a big missile looking thing, and then there's a smaller pineapple grenade on a little perch. What, what's going on here? So to start, I don't have one here, but in World War One, they came up with the uh, M1 grenade launcher, which would have been for the 1903 Springfield. Okay. Basically, what it was, it was a round cylindrical uh, tube with uh, multiple fin cuts in it that would go with a uh, clamp over the barrel. Okay. Very rare. They destroyed majority of them after the war. And basically, all it would do, it would take same rockets, it would slide on there, and they would shoot them off. Later in the war, after they decided to go to the Grand, they needed something to work along with and put on the M1 Grand that was gas gun. So they created the M7, which is how it works is you have this pin here, which there's a plunger system in your gas tube that pushes that air and s- stops all the gas flow. So it basically turns a grand into a single-shot rifle. Hmm. So what that does, that slides on, and then you have your locking lug that locks onto your bayonet lug, which then you would slide on either your anti-personnel gun or your uh, regular uh, anti-tank round to whatever there's numbering system on here. So you'd have oh, five, see. six, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, it looks like, uh, yeah, there's like a rod. That part sticks out of the barrel in here, right? Yep, so your barrel sticks right there. Right there. Oh. Okay, and then there's, uh, yeah, there's like this shaft that's coming out of the barrel, then it has these rings all along it. And those rings correspond to what round you're shooting out? Um, rounds and distances. Oh, okay. um, and there's also an angle game playing involved in this. Wow. So you have a lot of 45 and 30-degree angles. So you also, late in the war, they decided to give... The uh, little grenade launcher sight that would go on the side of the grand. Those would go on the side of the grand. So on the right side, on the other why, side. Why don't you go ahead and mount it, Nick, and give him an idea how it all so, works. Yeah, here we go. All right, if you're watching on YouTube, you're going to see this all go down. But all right, so he's got this uh, He's got this M7, so it's just going right onto the front of the gun, almost, yeah, like a bayonet would, and the plunger kind of stuck into the gas system underneath the barrel, and now from the front of the barrel is protruding this, this essentially holder for... Like a stem. Okay, and then you just you twist on that. Twist right on. now we have the pineapple grenade launcher here. This is, you said, like an anti-personnel. Yep. And, and so what they would do is then they would empty out their end block. So if they would have a live uh, live end block in here, they would open the action, discharge the full end block. Okay. And then put a blank round. And so this is just an empty case. So what they did is they took a 30-06 case, filled it as much powder as they could, and just crimped <laughs> the end, basically. Well, there's a set charge. Set charge. Okay. Um, then they would do a slide in the chamber. Later in the war, they gave them a little cheat sheet with different ranges, different types of rounds to fire Look at that. off. Some some dope, some grenade dope. Correct. Exactly. How about that? Range tables. And then they would fire it however distance. A lot early war, they had sling setups with tape. A lot of guys would get tape and they would figure their angles and then they would from the ground put their foot and set that angle. So you would know, kind of like a mortar. Oh, you would turn your gun into a mortar? Okay. Exactly. Basically. So I see, yeah. So here's one, for example, uh, fragmentation hand grenade MK2 with grenade projection adapter M1. And so they have angle of elevation. So let's say you're at 45, and the position on the launcher is 6. Now, would that be furthest down or furthest Correct. out? Furthest up. Furthest so up. So furthest up is okay. 6, yeah. And then uh, M1 rifles, it says range 60 yards. Now, if you go down to position three, the 45-degree angle will get you out to a range of 130 yards on an M1 rifle. Oh, look, they even give it for carbines and mm-hmm. then the M19L3 yeah. rifles. Look at that. They later dated, yeah, they did one for the carbine as well. That is so cool. That's pretty trick. And then you would you could also stick this big mamma jamma so on there? So I'm trying to remember. I can't remember what these are. I don't know the 
pronunciations. I know like this would be, for instance, like the M7 round or like the M11. I can't. I think this was the M M1. M21. I don't want to miss. I don't want to mispronounce them, but they had their own pronunciations, okay. which would lead to a different chart. Okay. On the cool. How did they come up with this pineapple holder thing? This is this is pretty wild. I mean, that was well, just... it. Basically, came down to they know a man can only probably throw that no more than 30, 40 yards. Yeah. So if they needed an anti personnel, you know, out into the hundred yard range, this is the only way they could do it. And at that point in the war, did they feel like that was a problem that they had that people just couldn't chuck? They couldn't check grenades far yeah. enough. Yeah, most time when they when they use this at this range, that range it would be an air burst, so it'd be raining down the shrapnel. Okay. Instead of hitting the ground and impacting, blowing up. Yeah. So it's wow. It's basically the same thing they do now. They have air burst rounds. Okay. Are these the numbers on here? You know, you're talking about yeah, let's say 100 yards, and you're talking about an air burst. So and like, are they factoring in essentially like a time of flight? So that's going to essentially go off at whatever. 10 feet off the ground every single time? Or I guess how precise was this all working together? Do you know? Well, as precise as can be, because I think these had a four-second fuse. I believe four-second, yep. So they knew at that elevation, that distance, it would explode somewhere in that range. Wow. I mean, of course, back then they had duds, too. They could hit the ground. and Yeah. Wait, can you imagine one of those falling on your noggin? Yeah. Oh, what was that? Oh. Surprise. <laughs> but there again, it'd be a lot better than a guy trying to throw it that 100 yards. I yeah. Mean, this, this oh, heck done. yeah. Yeah. So that that sort of rests our case that we we put out to the Vortex Nation there to, to help us out on how these things would launch grenades. One thing I would like is you yeah. originally said that they would fire a live round. On the original 03 model, they could. As long as this wasn't on there, and they left the grenade launcher on, because you can see that tube. It's hollow. They could fire oh. through it. Okay. So, okay. yeah, I see. So, it would, oh, wow. Huh. And, and even on, on the grand, you the still can, except sure. every time you charge around, you're going to have to recharge it because you're oh, cutting because off it, the gas you, system. Yeah, yeah a, it turns it into essentially almost like a There's a, a spring gun. system in here, a little spring that plunger, plunger yeah. that turns off the gas. It's like on your, kind of like your piston okay. ARs. Gotcha. If you're okay. very similar with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's in, pretty unique. In, would, a, in a pinch. Exactly. In a pinch, yes. I would like to note that on the back of the handy... Um, instruction manual provided with said grenade attachment for said infantry rifle. It is not until you get to number three in the uh, directions under cautions that uh, it is stated never use ball ammunition when firing live grenades. <laughs> so, so All right, so we got those. We're just about to shoot. Oh, wait, we should probably... Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> more yeah. of a guideline than a directive. Right. Uh, I guarantee it probably happened. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm certain. Uh, wow. That's that's pretty incredible. My favorite thing is the illustrations because they all looked exactly the same from about 1930 mm-hmm. to about yeah. 1960. So whether it was a, a, you know, a range table for your grenade or your Sears Roebuck catalog, they all were <laughs> the same. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I do have one more question on do it. Do it. So when that would fire, so we've got that little block of wood there. Mm-hmm. And that's holding... Yeah, what's what's the deal with the little block? I mean, it, it literally just looks like a little Jenga piece that's stuffed in there. S- storage, and when you're walking with it, your clip will clank. Yeah. And you'll hear clink, okay. clink, clink, yeah, this clink, thing, clink. So Oh, this, that keeps you quiet? This will keep bouncing back and forth. The big pin will just bounce and bounce. It basically hmm. just holds it in one position. Um, a lot of times, they would just flick that out or shoot it off with it, because once you pull the pin, this spring in here is going to burst out. Okay. throw that spoon off it. So yeah. So was that a manual... Did they pull? arming of the or did it auto when you shot? So no, you once you put it on, 
you pulled that pin and you shot it off as fast as you could. Yeah, you better shoot that thing. Well, exactly. Okay. You, you were fine, and to, once you shot it, and then the concussion would blow the grenade exactly. loose from the mount. Then, then the spoon would fly off. Then it would the fuse would start. Exactly. Oh, okay. This this just all part of the safety mechanism here. Gotcha. And then, just so cool. Yeah, and that sight, that's pretty unique, too. So how, how, where, you said it was on the right side? So if this would work, this was late war, late, late World War II, Korea mainly. But how it worked is there was a little disc um, that they mounted with two screws on the side of the rifle. Mm-hmm. And then this would mount on here, and it would adjust to your elevation. So you even got a little bubble level in so there. So you got a little bubble level. Make sure the gun's level. And there's Look at that. Little disc and it's got little ranging markers on it. And If you ever get a chance to see uh, an M203 sight, it's not... Dissimilar to very this. Similar. Yeah, very similar. So right. that's pretty cool. That is super cool. So the was stuff it, they used to come up with, man. Was I mean, this, with the technology available and, and in a pinch because you're in the middle of a war. Yeah. So was this something that, like, they gave to the GI and said, okay, this is going to be a, a field expedient operation. You're going you're gonna to screw this into the stock of your M1. Or is this something that from the armor would be issued a, a grand with this? installed well it's really no different today like today when you've got a, a platoon you've got your grenadier he's, yeah, yeah. he's assigned to grenadier he's got the either the m203 yep. or the m79 whatever he happened or whatever new thing they've got well it was the same way back then you know you had your machine gun crew you had your guys to support the machine gun crew and you had your grenadier if for some reason the grenadier got hurt shot killed his weapon was taken out all he needed was to take the m7 and the grenades then any Infantrymen, what they had the grand could do sure, that. Sure, sure. Hmm. And even even if the original rifle had the sight on there, long as he knew and they were probably trained what angle, what elevation, what position he could be the grenadier. Wow, this is fantastic. Uh, it's cool to see these things in person. So now we talked about the uh, the grenade launcher thing here a little bit. Now getting to the guns, we discussed behind you guys. There's quite an allotment of of firearms from this era, and you have them kind of. Worked out here as far as, I think it goes allies, axis, and neutral, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Correct. You're going to start with the good guys, then go bad, and then end on a medium note. So what's the first <laughs> what, What's the first allied gun that one should talk about when they're talking about World War II era rifles? So the first one we have, we'll start with allied powers that went along with the U.S. We have the uh, Mosin-Nagant, which would have been your Russian power. The classic Wow. Okay, this, this one's is a... set up a little different. I brought this one because it's got both the features that your standard infantry rifle would have had and the famous uh, sniper rifle, the PU sniper that the. Okay, Russians yeah. So this isn't like the Mosin Nagant you just find, you know, in a uh, creek somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. They just put a scope on it. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We hosed it off. Is that the main difference between this particular, the sniper rifle and just kind of the one there that I you was. find in like every Cabela's? There I was catching crawdads. <laughs> Lo and behold. So what they did was they took your standard run-of-the-mill, P- I mean, Mosin sniper. Yeah. Sometimes they looked for accuracy. The mo- I mean, the Russians really weren't looking for the most accurate rifles out there. They just uh, took your Russian. run-of-the-mill. Half of them are drunk on vodka anyway. Uh, exactly. So. Um, they took a standard rifle, would drill and tap the side, the left side, mount a block in there that would uh, then have a screw on the back that would hold the scope above it. It's, a, I believe, a two-power scope, two-and-a-half power I scope. So. I think you're right. PU scope, which has basically just a flat horizontal bar with a vertical post in the center. Okay. That is mounted straightly above the action or the chamber. So the standard Mosin, if you look at one, the bolt is a flat bolt that runs to the 12 o'clock position. So to solve that problem, they would have, it would be running into the scope. 
So they basically they extended the bolt down to the side to clear the scope. Kind of bent it down. Yep. Yeah. I love the way that they're mounted, too. I mean, you have this little this scope here. I mean, it looks like it's reminiscent of, a, I mean, a toilet paper roll. And I, I'm not saying yep. that in like, a, in like a degrading way or anything. But it's just, that's all it is. It's just one tube. And it has these two little turrets on it. And then the, the mount is hilarious, too, because it's mounted... Both rings are mounted forward of the turrets, and then the rest of it's just left to kind of come back to your eye. I mean, this is just uh, this is just classic. Have you yeah. shot this one? I have. A couple funny things about it. It's, it's not like your lefty. standard scope. When you want to go left, you turn the right, the dial left. This is a complete opposite. So if you want to go left, you have to turn right. <laughs> oh, so in this case, you are actually, the turrets are related to actually you're physically moving the reticle rather exactly. than moving your point of impact. Yeah. And actually, oh, that's got to be confusing. This one lo- was a little ahead of its time because it actually had a true rangefinder. If you look at that top dial, that is, that is a, a BDC turret? Yes, it's basically BDC. So, yeah, once you get the scope, when we sighted it in, once we got the scope ready, I mean, set to where we want it, we t- take those two screws out and slowly reset the dial, kind of like you're zeroing out your turrets yeah. in modern day. Well, all those soldiers are used to having their uh, rear sight that's kind of correlated to a distance, so they basically just did the same thing, but with turrets and yep. adjusting a, a reticle. Man, this thing is this thing's in beautiful condition, too. It's a really, really nice piece. I love the fact that when we start talking about rifles, of all the rifles that are here, the first one we talk about is the Mosin. <laughs> and the, the leather lens caps, too. How neat is that? It was a simpler time. It yeah. was, man. I think this particular rifle is even more special for me. Hornady had come out with a, a lot of am, or a type of ammunition called Vintage Match. I'm sure you've seen mm-hmm. it. Uh, Dave Emery, one of the ballisticians down there, to test this, used a Mosin PU, and they did a, a great write-up. I can't remember if it was in Guns and Ammo or if it was it was in one of the gun rags with a, I, I want to say it was a 1903 sniper, like an A4, a PU or a PE, I can't remember, and then a, a K98 sniper and they did a thousand yard accuracy test and this thing won handily and uh, i just think that was the neatest the neatest darn thing 762 54r right yep okay very neat it still even got the rear sight on it the regular yeah. rear sight is that could you use that underneath the scope you can the scope sits that high far oh, enough oh. up you using the actual and i've done that before and it's the both the iron sights and the scope are on yeah that's pretty rad yeah, the only that thing is. really different they did change the front sight post correct would would be different on the sniper than the actual. Is rifle. that was that to make it lower to get out of the way of the scope or? No, just I think it's di- just, just it's the just the pin. It's not the actual globe. It's the actual sight front post. Oh, just a little bit different. It, it is different, huh? Hey Ryan, hold hold on to that, or can you bring that up again? So loading that rifle, then they don't have a detachable box mag, so nope. you got to kind of fish your fingers. And no in there, stripper clip fed either. Yeah. It's a single load. Okay, that's right. that was going to be my question, and then a little bit. Make Even it. with with the scope there, seems like... Make that shot count. And yeah. a lot of times what they would do, um, from stories I've read, like especially in Battle Stalingrad where the PU sniper got its fame, um, they really would only load a couple rounds into the magazine because usually you would take one shot and then relocate because you basically gave your position away a lot Shoot of times. Move. So yeah, they mainly loaded two or three rounds. They wouldn't fully load a full magazine. Hmm. Phenomenal. And there again, you had you had support too. Support. You would always have a, a like a spotter or somebody with you. Yeah, using a uh, regular Mosin then. Yep. Either regular That's Mosin. Time. Sometimes in rare situations, they would have had the PPSH. PPSH submachine gun. Submachine gun Ooh, that they would yeah. have had. Nice. So my, I mentioned this before in the last podcast. I'm always, I'm always so humored by the sliders and how like. 
2,000 meters. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> they liked volley fire, no doubt yeah, about it. Yeah, they did. That, that's a throwback to uh, trench warfare and, and uh, earlier times. I'm, very neat. I'm stoked about what's next on the uh, menu here, which is a uh, Lee Enfield jungle carbine. We brought this one up in our last podcast because I had I actually even brought it here today just for fun. The 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 number four Mark One star here, Lee Enfield that we had. But this this gun, the Jungle Carbine, is a this is a far, in my opinion, cooler rifle. I mean, just just to see it and the way that it was used. I mean, it's so it's so handy. It's so much smaller than the regular. It, one. it is carbine in the sense of the word. Yeah, absolutely. How long was the barrel on these? That's a great question. Did we have a tape measure? Too short, I'd Oh, my say. bad. Millimeters? Yeah. I'll give it to you. Know you know who will know this? I would I, say too short. <laughs> I bet, our, I bet our, our colleagues in the UK will know this. Oh, oh certainly. Yeah. Bentley and Mark. Oh, here we go. If, Mark if is very accurate. 24. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah about yeah. right. I'd say 24, 26, right around that area. Yeah. Now, but, when you say too short, are you saying for accuracy's sake? or No. It will shoot fine. I haven't been able to cite that one in yet. I'm actually, I've shot and I've hit a human-sized torso at 100 yards, no problem with yeah. it. I've only shot original 1943 dated cordite through it so far, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you really can't play that too accurate yet. Boom and pop. Exactly. You never know. <laughs> they brought better stuff. I have, yeah. Was, um, but uh, So that one's got some cool history to it. Um, that one. Explain how they actually come up with that. So how yeah. they came up with that one is, so what they did, they took, you would have had your standard number four Mark One during the war. This one is actually a converted number four. It's that early. Uh, it's a September of 44. So converted from a rifle that's similar to the one here like Correct. I had, right? Correct. Okay. So they would have done is they would have taken it, knock off a lot of the wood, uh, mm-hmm. shorten the barrel, and then pinned or welded this. It's pinned. Pinned? Is it pinned? I can't remember. Pinned this uh, flash hider and bayonet lug on it. Which looks like a... Uh it's reminiscent of a miniature version of the old cartoon Blunderbuss. Yeah. yeah, that kind of megaphone looking. So I was going to ask that flared out end is actually that's a flash hider. Flash hider that's the or nose cone something. Yeah. Okay. Um, just to take down some of the flash from okay. the round. Yeah, because of that shorter barrel, you're going to have a lot of unburnt powders. It's going to flash. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then you got, yeah, of course, your bayonet lug. Also, what they did is they took the standard number four has one lightning cut on the top of the barrel. It's not okay. Really, um, and this one, they did two lightning cuts on the side to mm-hmm. lo- lose some weight as well. Then also they did lightning cuts on the receiver. Sure enough, yeah. And knocked a little bit of wood off the stock. They loosened up down here, rounded it out more. This one's been rounded out a lot. It's yeah, you can. T- yeah, it has been rounded out quite a bit. I imagine that, yeah, it's got a different butt plate on it. Also, they put a rubber, as I say, rubber butt pad. This one being 70 years old. <laughs> it's hard as a rock, but doesn't shoot too bad, shockingly, for 1943 dated ammo. And they made this for, for I mean, jungle warfare. Jungle warfare, Where Burma, Burma, mostly Australia, that okay. around the middle, Central Pacific. Um, yeah, what they would have done is basically very similar like the M1 carbine. This was the British solution yeah. to it. Still shooting the 303 British. Still 303, so it's a shoulder thumper, no problem, especially on the short little handy carbine like yeah, this. Yeah, very lightweight. Um, another thing you can look at is they kept the same sights mm-hmm. as yours. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how yours is set up. Range distance, you might have all the way up. Mine to, goes to 13. So yeah. they knocked it, this one down to 800 yards. Okay, so yeah. So they changed something nicely on this one. Nice. Um, then still came the same peep sight. Um, they also did, yeah, a lot of on this one. Another thing, especially for the jungles the British did, is they painted with a special paint the receivers and the barrel to help with rust prevention. Oh, okay. So this one, yeah, you can see it's got the original green, green paint. paint on it on the side of the receiver. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And did that wear off over time? Wear off or whoever the previous owner of this one, especially on the barrel, top of the barrel, they would have cleaned it all out of it off. It's a very tough paint, so they took a lot of time to clean it off. Yeah. If if you look at some of the original World War II color photographs where these are in them, they look basically green. Yeah. 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 I don't, don't know that I've seen one that's been complete. Or it's been redone. Yeah, know? either redone, especially in museums. Yeah. That's yeah. mainly the time you see them. You know, it's funny because, like, we look at that and we estimate, you know, the barrel to be about 24 inches long. But for whatever reason, that gun, that bolt gun there looks so much smaller than any other bolt gun that I, like, modern bolt gun with a similar barrel length to me. I don't I don't know what it is. It's but a that long thing, stock. Is I th- it? I think. Yeah, well, especially since, since you're keeping the same butt stock, it right. makes it look pretty long. Yeah. Pretty long. Yeah. Now, really the, unique. The, the later... Jungle carbines had a different nose cone. They Correct. did change the bottom. So this one, which helped, another thing besides the date on the receiver, it tells me this is an early one plus an original one, is you can tell they took the original bottom wood and they just rounded it off. Mm-hmm. The later ones, like 47 and after, or 46 and after, I'm not 100% sure, they basically just made it straight down here and basically just squared it off. Okay. That's another I think it's tell. got a piece of ebony on the end. I believe it? so. What uh, What's the deal with that kind of nose cone looking thing? I, I don't actually understand how that could possibly be a flash hider. It's a, I think it's just a blast chamber in which it contains it and allows it to possibly burn more so that it's not coming out. Oh, at the end of it, just a I flat could also see it, how it could help keep the muzzle down a little bit. Like it doesn't Yeah, always keep that down. Hmm. Like many flash hiders, though, I can also see how it could be horribly ineffective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Are any of these cartridges here, the 303 yeah, so British? Yeah, so the three... I. I could have gotten regular commercial 303 British out, but I decided to grab the original um, 1943 dated head stamp. Okay. Uh, number Mark 7, 303 British, that has cordite. And we can maybe pull one open if. Got a pair of pliers on If you got a pair of pliers, we could pull one open yeah, and pull look, it at, the, look yeah. at the original cordite. Do we need Before we. What's, like, what's the value of one of these cartridges? I got thousands. We got tons of it. So cordite's fun. All right. So, yeah, explain it, cordite. That, that, didn't answer, that didn't answer my question. So, of <laughs> that round. Seventy-five cents to a dollar. Oh, okay, right? not yeah. much. It's Interesting. Not, it's not priceless so, ammo. So, is there? There's a lot of this to be had still around. Yeah, Nineteen. Yeah. Not like there was stamped. twenty years ago, but it's it's around. If you want it, you can find it. Okay. W- Interesting. What's, what's the deal with this cordite stuff then? So, for, for people that are familiar with reloading, you got your extruded, your ball, and your standard powder. This is nowhere near it. If you're, it looks like spaghetti. Do you want me to pull it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and pull it. Go ahead and pull it. If you look, if you like spaghetti, you will want to eat this. It looks very close to spaghetti. Seriously, cordites are for the same explosive they used on the battleships. They had big sacks. They would run the cartridge up in the the projectile up in the barrel. Then they'd run these bags of cordite on there. Then they'd prime that, and that's what they'd explode. Really, it's the same basic explosives they used on the battleships. The head of the uh, or the neck of that case is kind of like it's got those crimps. Yeah, in it's there. been yeah. crimped, and yeah, most time. I wonder if is this. I mean, it was the same stuff that would have been machine gun grade ammo. Yeah, it, it would have all okay. been. Yeah, Mark yeah. Seven was used by pretty much every three or three British round during so, World War II. Yeah, whether it was on aircraft, aircraft or whether it was yeah. Mark Seven was their main, like M one ninety three balls with the military uses in their five five sixes nowadays. Yeah. So For those of you watching me struggle through <laughs> she's removal of this projectile, yeah, you may have to just just bend it ninety. Yeah, I'm wondering. Well, I kind of keep about the, the, the kind of safe, but I ain't gonna explode. No, no, no. I just didn't want to mar it all up. Cordite's funny because depending on the temperature and the humidity, you can have very, very interesting results on muzzle velocity and, and downrange ballistics. So sometimes it works really good, and sometimes it does not work good at all. Really? Yeah. What is it like? Hot? Cold? Uh, um, I think dry and hot. Dry and hot, yeah. Yeah. 
there's a, a really good story uh, out there of a professional elephant hunter who got stomped out. He made it because of cordite. Um, his cordite batch was bad, and I think the 303 Brit probably accounted for a great deal of ivory, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40s. It's a very interesting thing. Wow, am I riding the struggle bus? Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and jump You to keep the next working one. on that. We'll talk about the next rifle that's on here. Now, the, holy smokes, this thing is about 20 feet long. Hope I'll pull that off to All right. people watching. So we got, because we have some bayonets on a lot of these rifles. Bayonets are pretty sweet. It's not always the case that you can find the bayonet for a certain rifle, a given rifle. Nope. Looks like he got it uh, out. So. Oh, there we go. We got that. We got the bullet out with the cordite. Got to get the overwad off. What do you, wait, what's in there now? An overwad. An overwad. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's. So there's another layer of protection against environmentals and then also to assist in building of proper pressure and overrun. Okay. So this is the greatest part about cordite. Boy, that was anticlimactic as well. <laughs> oh, man. They really got it packed in there. That yeah, one's tight, yeah. That's, usually they just fall usually right yeah, out. they got a couple loose strands and it just comes right out. You may have to split that case and kind of peel it too. It's, I've done that. I can just kind of break one of them and get it going. Wait for it. You know, it's fine. I'm surprised that there's not like a, a cordite producer for like vintage. I thought it was illegal, but I'm Is not it? 100% Cause of, cause of sure. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure if it's illegal. Why would still, it be illegal? Just because the pressure or the, you could, oh, it, well, I could the temperature. Your, I could see your point because you get enough of it. You could truly, it truly is an explosive. If you get, you got to keep it in a controlled climate. If you keep oh, so it, it's so like the modern powders and stuff, they're they're not as they're not as explosive as people modern think powders they are. burn where yeah. this explodes. Yeah. It, okay. Okay, interesting. There we go. Well you're peeling her back yeah. now. Yeah we we've totally banana peeled this thing. You guys can have this back when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> That's all five minutes. That's all right. That's why we brought it for demo purposes. I think yeah did we get into cordite on the last we I think talked it a might little have bit even about been briefly it. brought up but I remember you talked to Ryan about how the smell has that. It does. There's just a thing, a thing with cordite that I really enjoy. It's like shooting old paper holes, too. All right, there we go. You know what it looks like? It looks like that uh, gluten-free, wheat-free pasta. It does. Yeah, it does. Cordite. There you go. Cordite. That is cordite. Holy smokes. Holy mackerel. Yeah. It, you are absolutely correct, yeah, before it gets cooked. Whole grain pasta. It's, it's like you took a little stack of pasta and cut it down. and No lie. I thought, I, I couldn't imagine, when you guys said it looks just oh, like wow. spaghetti at first, I and was just trying. Tons of them. Just I didn't believe that it would actually truly look just like uncooked spaghetti. I, well, and I want, Jim, when you look down into the case, I mean, it, it there. It looks like a. It, it looks, looks like, just you, like you're looking down into the bo- a box of angel hair pasta. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Wow. There's oh, quite right. a bit of it in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's. They got to pack those things. Full, huh? Wow. I mean, yeah, all these individual rods and yep. then... Psh. Yep. And uh, I'm trying to remember. It was a capstick book I was reading, and he was shooting a cartridge that eludes me at the moment. Loading it with cordite. He had raw cordite. He would reprime the case. He would fill it with cordite, and he'd break it off at the at just below the case mouth or something like that, and then seat the projectile, and then continue hmm. on hunting. Hmm. Where does one get cordite nowadays? I don't think I, you do. I don't, I don't think, think you do. Can. It's you pretty don't. much what... A you, lot of guys you, do. You pull the bullet, Jim. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> you go back right. Fair I just, yeah, I didn't realize. How, how do you think that'll meter through a uh, charge yeah. master or some such well, thing? That, that was going to be my question. How how were the cases filled? That's a great question. I, I like to watch old videos on how stuff's done. I have not yet been able to find a video on how 
if I was a guessing man, they probably this was probably a straight wall case. Mm-hmm. They had the charge in the bundle, stuck it in there, then neck sized it. Yeah. Hmm. You can see why a lot of ammunition factories had unfortunate you know, accidents back in the thirties and forties. Wow. Yeah. Cordite. Sweet. Pretty neat. That is that is super neat. It's a very, very interesting transition from black to smokeless powder cordite. Yep, they're different diameters. Some of them are even different lengths. They got the hole. <laughs> yeah. they got the, the hole down the middle of them. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Yep. What's this next guy we got here? So we do transitioning this one, this back one to rifles. Pretty quick. This is what would have been used in World War One. They but they were also used in World War Two quite a bit. Oh, this is still a, this is a smelly too. This is so I like to put it as like a family. Um, so this would have been the father to your rifle. Yeah. And the child would have been the jungle. Okay. So this would have been, this is a 1918, I believe. Yep, number three, Mark One, number three, Star. So, um, yep. The Star is important. So, yeah, the Star is basically upgrade, small little changes they've made. Yeah. How the trigger supported. Trigger supported. Yeah, all those little tools. Okay. So, yeah, this would have been mainly used in the trenches of World War One, but they were also, since they couldn't produce as many, as quick, and after the Battle of Dunkirk early in the war, a lot of rifles got left behind. So they had to go to these as well. Um, so yeah, this one still the same three or three British caliber, still the same ten round box mag, still the same. Far, just a little bit redone. The bolt and the action area has been far redone. Far more intricate than mine. Correct. Which we kind of discussed a little bit on the is that you know a lot of these firearms when they started out, they were kind of they were there was something you would almost expect out of like a craftsman, like yeah. a custom gun, yeah. or something. And then they found, you know, when they got into World War Two and and probably even World War One, I'm not certain, but they found, you know, okay, we got to mass produce these things. And when we're making these, I mean, even looking at this wood here, the way that it's trimmed down there, and you know, mine just goes completely straight back. You know, they were we got to figure out how to simplify this manufacturing process so we can just churn out guns. And this was the first British rifle to be uh, stripper clip fed. So okay. The predecessor, of this the Lee Metford or Long Lee was a lot longer. It's like a 28 inch barrel, if I'm not mistaken. Was a uh, single load into the magazine. Still had the ten shot mag, but it was a single load. Didn't have the stripper clip guide. So when they designed this, they wanted stripper clip guide. So yeah, they were able to. This was the first design, and then it's a high high wall or high bridge stripper clip guide. So you have all that momentum down. Yeah, and you can see where these were riveted on from production. When they went to the the number four, it was cast into the receiver. Okay, right, right. Now you could still, you can still detach that yep. magazine though. You probably could have. Yeah, yeah, it still can. Okay, quicker though to just oh, do yeah, a stripper clip. Wait, it's a lot. Of, that's why. Yeah, they were never. They're so stiff to get out. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, they weren't intended to be. Sure enough. Yeah, they would have only had this one, and then they would have had multiple stripper clip chargers that would have been in their belts. And all right, but yeah, it's. It's funny, you go through all the work of making a detachable box mag and then you make but it you strip. Don't use it. Yeah. yeah. Another just... thing, yep. They made this one where it's just the barrels right at the the front of this nose cone mm-hmm. with the bayonet big bayonet lug attachment on the front. That's cool. This bayonet is just incredibly Yeah, that one they huge. called that one I believe the pickle bayonet. I'm not 100% the pickle sure. Pickle bayonet. That is a reproduction. This one is a reproduction. I haven't all been right. able to find an original one for a decent price yet. Whew. But yeah, that's I think it's over a foot long. Yep, and well over We'll get into it a little bit. Um, early, yeah, World War One. if you look at all the bayonets, they were all long. Yeah. All 16 inches plus long. And then after the war, the Geneva Convention, it was unethical to have this long of a bayonet. So they made all the countries shorten them. And you'll see one where one country basically disobeyed the Geneva Convention. 
Look, if you're going to stab people to death with a knife on the end of your gun, at least have the decency to not make it 16 inches long. I guess, is that is that what they were saying? Yeah, because what's funny is that would go th- clean through someone. Oh, yeah. No doubt. I think, for me, what's really cool about this rig is, again, we're not far away from the transition period from, from muzzle-loading firearms to repeating firearms, or, right. or even, even cartridge-type breech loaders right. that were, were single-shot. But it has a lot of the... Uh, you know, leftover styling cues of brass butt plate, the full length wood, the fitment and how the wood and everything goes together. And then the large bayonet, which was, was yeah. common. Throughout if you looked the, at like a picture of it and you chopped off just the receiver. You, you would. Yeah. You might you not know. You might not know. Right. If you're none the wiser. Was the length of the bayonet also related to kind of piking for horses? Because yeah. they, they still use horses in World War yeah. One. Piking. So you, a, a pike would be used to pull a man off a oh, horse. Like or jousting, to, practically. Uh, yeah. You'd be on the ground, yeah. You'd plant. Uh, oh, you either, you either pull the man off the oh. horse or you stab the horse. Oh, a horse is coming straight at you, and you're going to just, you put your rifle down on the ground, kind of, and then brace yeah. it and just, yeah. Right. It's funny you mention it, because I think piking, I think U.S. inventory still had pikes during the First World War. Did they really? I think they were still yeah. issued. I know we still used horses. They did in, the Civil War for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of bayonets and stuff like that, that next one that you brought, and that's a French Moss. French Moss yeah. 36. And this has a unique bayonet, too. So this one... It's like a antenna. It, it's very... It's not like a knife. It just looks like a straight... So these have a funny poker. story to them. These were, they say, designed and produced in factories, of course, but a lot of them were produced by the resistance in basements, from stories I've read. Seriously? Yeah. During the occupation. During the occupation, especially early 44... And before, yeah, you had the factories were all Nazi ran, so you had to find a way to produce it's, rifles. Yeah. Or get them in, in, brought into the country. It's very straight. It like, is. Everything is very, like, straight lines. There's not, you know, you look at a lot of these other firearms, there's a lot of curvature to them, whereas this thing is just, like, everything is straight. Very modern. Um, yeah. And th- That's I've what always, I was thinking. It almost looks like a, a little bit like a... Does it almost look like a BAR? Yeah, bolt gun? I mean, you look. Yeah, it it looks like it. It looks like it's not supposed to be a bolt gun. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the seven five Moss is a, a really good round, actually. And I think the the rifle itself, despite what anybody has to say about anything that went on during that time, the the war and and the the people there, the rifle is pretty far ahead of its time. Um, it's it, it's very strong. It's it's well thought out. It's smooth. It's, uh, and the cartridge is really effective as well. If you look at the cartridge, if it was at like a quick glance, you'd be like, "Oh, modern cartridge." Yep, There's no way. Totally. I was gonna say, yeah, I was just gonna say through yeah, three hundred eight. Yep. What well, is a yeah. three hundred eight diameter bullet? Yeah, I was gonna say it'd be curious to look at that next to a modern day three hundred eight or even a thirty out. Like a quick quick pass of the hand, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, it looks like he's got a three hundred eight." Yeah. Yeah. So there's a thirty out six if you want to compare them side by side. Jiminy Christmas. Just yeah. I shorter. mean. Yeah. <laughs> And then if you had a 308, like you said, it'd probably oh, be wild. very close. But that's it's got, wild. you know, modern shoulder angle, modern neck length, um, you know, obviously very good diameter of bullet. Um, it, it's, a, it's a cool gun. It's a cool round. And I think actually a lot of the French arms, um, starting with the Moss, well, even, I mean, even going back, uh, like we have some, of, we've got a Charlevel, um up at the, the main building there, but, but all of the modern French arms are pretty darn neat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. That's just, you, you guys are... 10,000% more versed in this subject than I am, but I was trying to do a little bit of pre-research, and I was looking up some different firearms, and that Moss 36 was one that I came upon, and it definitely spoke to me with its, I prefer short, handy rifles. It's got a very short, yep, handy it nature. it is very handy. 
And it sounded like there was something special about the bolt as yeah, well. It kind of, I call it based off the infield bolt because you can do a quick fire with it. Once you have that hand up there, you can use your middle finger. Yeah. Once you uh, load it, your middle finger can be right there, and you can be ready to fire and just yeah, yeah. work that bolt all day. Plus, with it being a nice, short, handy rifle, you can be on that shoulder all day and be able to run it. Right. Super now, short bolt throw. It is. Very super short, nice. I don't shoot that gun a lot. It's because the ammo, you got to load it. Yeah. But it is a very fun fun rifle to take out to the range and shoot. I mean, when you when you look at this, and, and again, this this rifle was produced, what were the, the dates of manufacture on, on start of the uh, production? 36 would be because it's a yeah. Moss 36. I'm not 100% sure. Well, the when did the, the date. what is it, the Moss 49? 49, so yeah, late 40s. 48, 49. If, if you look at the bolt itself, rear lugs, which I think is really cool, mm -hmm. but... You know, it's got a fixed, like a blade ejector. It's got a very large, but can, like encapsulated and protected extractor. It's very modern. It is. I, I mean, if I look at like a Remington 788, it's not dissimilar, right? Uh, with the rear lugs and all that. I think it's, I, I think they're a cool gun. I've always thought they were pretty darn neat. Everything, like I, I can't even put my finger on how to explain how that thing looks, but it just, it looks like somebody, it does look like a gun somebody would make in a basement. Because nothing is. is overly complicated, even though it's very well engineered, you know, and designed. Nothing's overcomplicated. All the angles and everything is very straight. Smells of lanolin. Ooh. Lanolin. This one's got kind of, I think, kind of a cool story. You can see where it sat in a crate for a majority of its life. If you look on the front hand, top front hand guard and right where his cheek's about at, you can see where the wood pieces would, were sitting on the rifles. Oh, sure enough. Sat upside down in a crate. Upside down in a crate. It's, I think that's a very cool story. That is neat. You don't that see that very neat. often on guns. Right. Hmm. If you you can if you can find one of those with a German Waffenops on it that was made during the occupation, they're quite rare. Oh, Are no they? kid. So they had Nazi stamped. There's oh, yeah. pictures of German troops using the moss. No kid. Yes. Yeah. Well, you said the Germans copied some issues, some so, aspects of it. Cool story about the bayonet. It full, it goes right into the rifle. If you want to show them how that works. Yeah, it does. Ryan. You can you can put it bayonet end down into so the, the rifle. Bayonet sits up on the rifle, but also it stores away. On the inside of the rifle. Yeah. yeah so there you go. Story. You got it clipped on there. And again, it kind of looks like an antenna, not like a knife. And then you flip it upside down and boom, it just. Yeah, you think it's a gas tube. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you would. Super streamlined. Effective yeah. bayonet, though. I mean, I'm sure that's some sort of hardened steel, like like kind of the Mosin spike bayonets, too. You could run that through just See, And that's, that's the Geneva Convention kind of didn't like the, the trying to think of that type of bayonet. Spike. No, there's a name for oh, it. Oh, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Because when it's got the three pronged bayonet, the wound won't naturally like, heal like a, blood, like a blade. Like a blood groove. Kinda. Yeah, like a blood yeah. groove. Oh. That's pretty rad. And the German FG-42 copied. copied that bayonet and used it on so the yeah, once rifle. they saw the rifles okay. early, they decided to go with the short, a little bit shorter, but copied that style bayonet. If you look at an FG-42, they're not dissimilar in kind of shape, form, and function either. They, they kind of have a, a strange reminiscent yeah. uh, design cue from it. That bolt, that bolt, like you said, is super cool. They bent it forward to the, be directly it's a, it was above designed the trigger. Like that, actually. Directly above the trigger. It's very fast. Very, yep. That's it's cool. right where your hand That's sits cool. on that gun. So, cool. so you load for the Moss? Yep. Yeah. We load for majority. Is there, is there a parent case you can use or, or spin uh, down? Or I, you can, I think the parent case is very similar to an OT6. You can make 308, uh, Lava Swiss, the Moss, all out of a 30 out 6 Yeah. Case. Hmm. When you think about cartridges, which are all based off of an eight millimeter, so it's yeah. thirty out six, the granddaddy of them all. But uh, Privy makes ammo for yeah. it, so it's true. Nice oh, thing okay. is we get 
we we do bulk 308 bullets we just use bulk 308 bullets for that and that's yeah. what the, ri- the, the original bullet. bullet was a 307 diameter uh, a thousandth of an inch you're not going to know no hmm. probably get better accuracy probably with it. yeah, yeah probably. Huh. that's a cool that's a cool rig i that always is. i always really really do like these a lot of people overlook them because they're like a oh, french moss what's a french moss What's the what's the little dealio that sticks off the front? So of the that's right a side? stacking swivel. Stacking so a lot swivel. of times they would have stack, had them stack. You see your old oh. Civil War pictures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They had it off to can off to the side instead of underneath like a okay. some German rifles had. Cool. But it's a very. And cool. what's really odd about the Moss on your rear sight, if you wanted to change uh, windage, you had to get that the actual elevator blade here. They had different uh, blades for different windages. Oh. Mm. Yeah, so you found out if for some reason when you shot a rifle, you needed more right, you'd take it back in the armor, and he put that different blade in. To account for uh, various shooter flinches, yeah, I'm yeah. sure a lot. And the yeah. wind is just always blowing to the left when I shoot. Low left, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's cool. Yeah, it's too, it's too bad it's kind of a spendy cartridge to shoot because it's, it's a fine cartridge, it's a fine that's, rifle. That's cool. Did they have a Moss Sniper variant, or were they just Ooh, never... Uh, I've seen pictures of stuff, but you know how the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see some crazy stuff. Yeah, Yeah. and I know what I think. I don't think the French had a true sniper program like the you see on the the Germans and Americans had. I don't think they had one. Not to derail too much, but do you guys have a Liberator yet? No, no. Okay, I've looked. I I don't (laughs) really want to. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> See, but just because you'll want to shoot it. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to shoot it. And so. we shoot everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's funny. Speaking of snipers and then probably not sniping, but a sweet gun is the M1 carbine over there. Is mm-hmm. that what's next? That yeah, is. The I can only yet? see the top of it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. like I said, speaking of snipers, not speaking of snipers, uh, the M1 carbine. Okay. This is a, this is an awesome rifle. Yeah. This, this, this is a pistol caliber. Right. Essentially, yes. Yeah, it's it's not uh, not terribly far off of like a three fifty seven or. Look at that little guy! Yeah. Wow, you said it's not terribly far off from a three fifty seven. No, like you look at the case dimensions oh, okay. and things like that. Um, okay. po- power wise, I think the old three fifty sevens got her whipped, but yeah, it's a pretty cool little cartridge. That's a big. That's a that bullet almost looks like it's bigger than the width of the case a little bit because you can almost see where it, does. it like yeah. protrudes it's, out a little bit. They call it a straight wall case, but it does have a slight taper. Yeah. Yeah. Now this this is What's in late war configuration. The original uh, M1 carbine had a flip rear sight and did not have the the bayonet lug. Okay. And it also had a push button uh, a safety on it. This is in late 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 post war Pacific configuration. What's the story behind these rifles? So these were actually designed by a man in prison. Well, it, that's not that's a, the rumor. <laughs> he, he did he designed the he gas designed system. the gas system. Yeah. He had the time to think. Exactly. Yeah. So. The gas system is different from the M1 Garand. Correct. Yeah. See, that's always mind-blowing because you have the M1 carbine, which is different from the M1 Garand, which is different from the M14, which I feel like even even mentioning them in the same sentence, someone's going to try and kill me now, which is different from now <laughs> what we see at Springfield with the M1As. I like, But they all look so similar. Yeah. There's design cues like the, the operating system, the op rod, yeah, the, the bolt, side, rotating yeah. bolt, the way the uh, ejector, or excuse me, extractor works and... But no, they, it's a it's a remarkably different gun. Yeah. If oh. you look at a Mini 14 taken apart, it's the exact yeah. same system. Yeah. Oh, now, Mini 14 is is very, very similar. So it's direct ripoff. Now, when you load this one, would you actually load the mag, or would yes. this you would be, have be given multiple magazines? Couple mags. Yep. Okay. How many think, go? How many load into that mag? It's 15. 15. I yep. 15. And then nice thing is later in the war they added the uh, little pouch on oh, the yeah. buttstock, so you could have a nice two rounds right, two bags oh, okay. right, ready to go right there. 
what, several, the, what the carbine was designed for, they thought about doing away with the 1911 sidearm. They wanted to give that to uh, somebody who needed a little bit more firepower than the 1911, like an officer or a, a rear echelon troop. They th- will give them the carbine. Interesting. This was said to have more po- firepower than the 1911, then? 1911, correct. In that you could shoot farther. Sure. Oh, okay, yeah. I see, yeah. So this one's also cool. Um, I know remember in the last podcast you were talking about cool companies that made them. This is actually a quality hardware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would ever thought of a hardware that store is fantastic. or hardware company? The, yeah. And that's the cool part about all these is during the war effort, what... Dude, that's w- the most American thing well, Yeah, what we as a nation did. Refrigerator to, companies, yeah. sewing companies, yeah. hardware companies. Quality hardware was based out of Chicago, and that's got a Rockola barrel on it. If you look at the marking of the barrel. And jukebox barrel, man. Jukebox, How cool is barrel. that? Say what? Wait, Rockola huh? was a jukebox company. Yeah. They made jukeboxes. So they also made M1 carbines. <laughs> yeah, if you look about uh, two, three inches down from the muzzle, you'll okay. see where it says Rockola. Sure enough, right there. Yeah. Rockola. And also, this one was given to the Austrian, yeah, Austrian police. police. If you look on the bottom of the trigger guard, you'll see like uh, some initials. LGKT. Yeah. So it was Lend-Lease after the war to the, the Austria military, military police. police. So who in in today's modern landscape is still utilizing M1 carbines? Because there are, is it Korea? Yeah, there's some. There's some countries that are still, I can't off the top of my head. It's it's still a viable arm, which is pretty interesting to me. I kind of look at it and I say, why wouldn't you? Oh, no, it it is a remarkably little effective carbine by carbine standards. I I have an old customer, he's now deceased. Um, He was from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota. His name was Clayton Stanton. And uh, he was one of my favorite customers because when I met him, uh, he was like 143 years old, and he was in the European campaign, <laughs> and I think he was on like the second or third um, wave into into Europe, and uh, he had a 1911, or excuse me, he was issued a carbine, and he talked about how ineffective it was in combat, and he said, you, you, you know, you'd, you'd shoot and you'd shoot and you'd shoot and it would have no effect on on your uh, your opponent, and he. Uh, I can't remember really how far this was, this was a couple of years ago. He ended up trading his carbine to a young officer, he stated, for a 1911. And as he was moving through a particular part of town or a village, he ran into a, a German aggressor, a Nazi. And he said, I come around the corner, and I made eye contact with him. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. Neither of us wanted to die, but he was a Nazi, so I shot him in the leg, and he was dead. And he was, <laughs> he, was, he was talking about the 45. And I thought that was always funny. I, yeah. I looked at him like, you bet he was, Clay. You bet he was. And, uh, but, yeah, he, he, did, he loathed his carbine because he said it was so ineffective. But um, I guess that's up to some. That man has never carried anything but a 1911. Yeah, and, and he did. He bought several 1911s from me, and he was very old. Very nice guy. I miss you dearly, Clayton, wherever you are. But, Especially uh, in the Pacific. Yeah. They weren't. The knockdown power wasn't there like they thought it would be. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of times your Japanese soldier would be hopped up on all these drugs mm-hmm. or not eating a lot. So they're just coming straight at you. Yep. And it oh, would take really? two or three rounds, easily drop one more majority of the time. Yeah. Wow. And that's where the thirty eight special was also found to be Correct. rather ineffective in, yeah. in battle against what Spanish American War was yeah. where it was, yeah, found ineffective and yeah. that's when we went to the forty five. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And if and if you know anything about carbines, this is the spring tube design. When you take it out uh, on the, the receiver here, later issues, they, they had machinery that could bore a long hole in the receiver to put the, the spring. Early in the war, they didn't have that machinery, so they milled out a slot and took an actual rolled piece of steel, 
that would hold the spring and the uh, the actual the rod that would oh. hold the spring. Huh. So there's two different types of receivers on the carbine. There's a spring tube, then you've got the regular one that's got the long board hole. This is an early one that's got the spring tube. That's cool. You can still get a reproduction can today you? from yeah. Auto Ordnance. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those guys Auto Ordnance, yeah. Inland. They make yeah. like the new uh, inland is modern making. time again yep. kind of thing, Thompson's right? Is it uh, James Rivers making a – they even call it a Rocco, I think. Um, I think you're right. I'm not 100% sure, but I think you are correct. They are a cool little rifle. At, at hand, if you didn't know any better, you think it's a 1022. Yep. Yeah, yep. you know, you would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, and they're as fun to shoot as, as a 1022. Exactly. I bet. Ammo's still pretty darn reasonable now with, with some of the modern manufacturing. Yeah. So. What, what is it again? 30 carbine. 30, 30, 30, oh, 30 yep. carbine. Okay, yep. yeah. The cartridge named after the gun, yep. practically. Have you ever seen one chambered in 256? No. They're out there. That's wow. pretty cool. So, uh, all right, we got two more on the Allied side here, which, I mean, let's admit, is the only side that matters. But as far as uh, as far as far sides go, but the firearms are still going to be cool before we get into the bad guys. So this one's a cool one. This one's based on the 1903 Springfield. This one was an 03A3. So what they did is they took both the sights off. This was converted into a sniper rifle. So this has an original uh, Lyman Alaskan scope on it, so 1940 scope. Two power. Two power. Two, two, two and a half. Two and, two and a half. half power scope. So little flathead screwdriver little turrets. Flathead screw. This one is actually a very sweet gun to shoot. But it's, yeah, yeah very, basically they took your 1903 Springfield from World War One, made some upgrades, get rid of the, the uh, ladder sight here in the back, went mm-hmm. to a peep sight on the original 03. Grab the 03 dead right over here. So, yeah, this would be your standard 03. So the, what they did is, yeah, they took the peep sight off and they took the front sight block off sure and enough, just yeah. mount a scope on Oh, them. you can even see, like, it, when you say they took it Correct, off, like, it see. literally still has yeah. the dovetails for a front sight. Yep. <laughs> oh, wow. But, yeah, this would have been, yeah, this would have been reissued um, later in the war, um, like, early in the Pacific, the Marine Corps was issued the actual, the 03 with the Unertal 8 power scope, which okay. would have been super long, would have set out to here, and those are a really nice rifle to have, but, yeah, this is... This was more handy for the uh, environment that they were in. Correct. This right. was a lot shorter scopes. You weren't having to bang stuff on. But, yeah, the same same style reticle, if you want to look through that. Same style reticle as your Russian scope. Oh, yeah. Same vert- uh, horizontal bar with the vertical post. Yeah. But, yeah, this is very basically an 03 Springfield scope. Not too far off from our old G4 BDC and the Razor LH. Correct. It's a classic design. Shoots pretty good, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, yeah. One, this one, yeah, this is a very good shooter. There, there are still vintage matched sniper competitions that occur across the U.S. Uh, in which you, of course, can compete with this as it sits. Now, this one does have a new stock. The stock that I got on it was I formed a crack in the wrist, mm-hmm. so this one does have a brand new stock on it. That's why it looks in pristine shape. But yeah, it really does. And the cartridge of this one again? Still standard thirty out six. Okay. Yeah, they basically took the O3 Springfield that you did in the first video and yep. just upgraded some the sighting mechanism and. That's that's, a, that's and, and the only reason they stuck with the odd six in World War II is because when the M1 Grant was originally being done, it was what two seventy six. Yeah, two seventy six Patterson. Yeah, but I think yeah. MacArthur said, uh, you know, there's no use in restocking all of our ammo supply from a thirty out six to a new cartridge and have to incorporate that. So they stuck with the odd six. Sure, and it, I'm glad hey, they did. I'm glad Fantastic. they did. It would have been a mess. Yeah. Fantastic cartridge. Still, that's like the, we'll, when we yes, get into sir. the Allied. We'll talk about. I mean, the Axis. We'll talk about the yeah. Japanese were known for doing something kind of very bad on some of their stuff. We can get into that oh, one really? on yeah. that topic. Yeah. And Did one of the big things between the difference between the O three and the O three A three, they went to all stamp steel 
fasteners and all that is where everything on there is milled. Your trigger guard on the bottom is all milled. Your your clamps are all milled. Your front nose piece. You can see really? the U notch in yeah. your front band. These are all just stamped steel. So so again, just as that more war efficient. effort. As yep. that war effort went on, yep. we had to figure out where to make it. Make more guns. Where to break yeah. it. Yeah, these were made all the way up until the end of the war. Yeah. Not after more, the war. cheaper, no. faster. Exactly. Yep. That's a cool rifle. Another thing they had to do on the uh, standard, the bolt, they had to make some cuts on the bolt yeah, turn to down clear bolt. the scope because it is above the action or above the chamber as well. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Piece. Oh, yeah, because you had to, did, you loaded this one from the top as well? This one's yep. Yep, a single load, no stripper clip feed. Okay. You ever hunt with it? I do not. We don't. Uh, in Illinois, unfortunately, we can't rifle. Oh, that's right. So we are only it. shotgun hunting. Just, in Illinois, uh, hops give it a jump away from Kentucky, you know. Yeah. yeah. What's uh? I didn't speak too soon. Did I? As far as allies go, did we? Have we gone through all the allies? So we got, we got two more. Two more. Two okay, more. Quick two more. Ones. All right. We can go through this, this next one pretty quick. No, we're we're good. I'm just trying to I'm trying to figure out. So this is a oh. really cool one. Okay, so this, this one is, might be my favorite yet. This is basically a standard M1 Grand. This one would be. This is actually. This truly isn't World War II. This yeah. This truly this is. Very late World War II into Korea. They were used in late, late war. I've seen pictures of it. That would have been the C. That would have been the C. Basically, the difference is your block, your mounting block, were a little bit different. Okay. Um, but this is the M1D slash C sniper rifle. We don't have the correct nose cone that would be on it. We just were not a big fan of it. So what they did is they basically took your regular M1 Grand and put a receiver or a block, a stamp block on right in front of the action. Oh, were they on this yeah. one? There's yep, just exactly where that piece there. of wood's at. Yeah. Um, and just basically mount a steel block there that allows you to mount the uh, scope on it. That is a hefty-looking firearm. That thing just looks incredibly beefy. So speaking to the the use of the C and the D, I mean, this is a really, like, off-debated thing, right? Did it get used? Didn't it get used? I've seen photos. Okay. But... But yeah, with that the scope would come there. off, and it would you could put it in a case. The oh. ring system is is interesting to look at. It's mm-hmm. it's not like a vertically split or horizontally split ring. It's actually like rings on a like a door hinge. Yeah, the, like a yeah. door hinge that that hinges around the scope tube. Yeah, yeah. The, the original C had a, a clamp screwed to the side of the That's receiver right, yeah. that was made by Griffin and Howell. I mm-hmm. think it I was. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then they they used an M eighty two. This is an M eighty two scope. Where the D is supposed to use the M eighty four, but okay. they did use the M eighty twos on the early version. Yeah. Was that a slide out sun? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. On these old scopes, for those listening and not watching, these old scopes don't have like a big objective bell. They're just imagine like all the one to sixes, one to eight stuff like that, just straight tube to the end of the objective. And this thing has a slide out sunshade, like a spotting scope has a slide out yeah. sunshade. Where it's just I didn't even realize it was there, but all of a sudden just whoosh, it yeah. just slid out and it's kind of it it's already index to stop and you got a sunshade right there yeah. and there's a little bit of progression we looked at the a4 this alignment alaska which was a more of a civilian scope is essentially is this but this wasn't weather tight then when they made the m82s they made them weather tight oh they did okay yeah wow well the other interesting thing about that mount is it's not directly over the correct correct since this is a grand it runs yeah, off the stripper clip you have to have that action oh you had to put the scope off to the side right what, yeah, you had what a, a piece of equipment. I mean, that is just like a that is yeah, a, when you a have, gun to behold. I was trying so to think of like what it would feel, and I guess I can do it. But like when you try to look through that, it definitely doesn't. Yeah, seem... Yeah, that's why they added the cheek peed. Oh, cheek they pad. did. So your face could so your be a face little bit sits off. off to the left. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. Once you, once your so mic if there. you are watching, it almost extends the stock Correct. this way. Correct. And that is a very that we shot that recently. That's a very smooth shooting rifle. Very nice to shoot. 
It's an odd feel, though. It is. Being, you have to get being used pushed to it. off to the side. It's shoot, yeah, yeah. Some of the uh, some of the old, or I know at least one of the old Japanese guns was it the Type ninety nine that had the weird it had the magazine it, that stick stuck yeah. off yep. the top, yeah. and then they had to make the sights stick off to the side. Yep, the Bryn gun was the same way. If yeah. you're not if you're familiar with okay. the Bryn, okay, machine gun, it was the same way. You good, Mark? <laughs> I was trying to adjust back, my headset, but back then I'd have in to action, flip it and reverse it. And <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's neat. Maybe this should be another podcast for vintage sniper rifles. So this one's yeah. also cool. This is a CMP Probably. rifle. Oh, is it really? And yeah. made yeah. on a World War II dated receiver. Oh, yeah. cool. See, oh, really nice. The Cs were all built, design-built guns. Correct. The Ds, they would take a gun out of inventory and say, okay, we need so many Ds. They would take standard receivers from World War II on up through Korea and made the gun. The only difference on the D truly is the barrel. They had a custom barrel that they would use. Okay. So this is a six-digit World War II receiver, but you could have them up into the six million serial number. Range. Wow, man, that yeah, that's a cool that's that's a cool gun. And then the last Allied rifle we'll go over. The it's kind of a cool guys. story. So this one's kind of a cool story. This one was used go. during World War II. This was actually a carryover from World War One. So this is the 1917. This one's in Eddystone, but Remington. Wasn't the 1903 one. also a carryover from World War One? Correct. Yeah. All right. Is, okay. Yep. So there was two that got carried two that over. got carried over. This one's a, I believe, a nineteen. I don't know the date on this one. Late eighteen. Late, late yep, September eighteen. Um. So this one, yep, carryover from World War Two. These are funny story. These were used mainly home front, but they did see a little bit of service over in, I mean, Europe. Air Force bases. Air Force so bases, yep. Army or A lot of cool of them. The P-14, which was the British version of this, was used by the actual British Home Guard, which would be like their National Guard units, a lot of older gentlemen, kids. But yeah, these were carryover from War One. Very sweet shooting rifle. Is a cock on close, just like your... Uh, I was just going to say, a lot of stuff on this gun looks similar to the Enfield. It is. It's Yeah. It's, it's called a- the American Enfield. That explains okay. it. Yep. Yeah, because yep. I was going to say, cock on closed, the safety looks the same, the rear sight looks the yeah, same. Yeah, what they the did is they took the same. a infield, the O3, and a Mauser and combined it all three. Because it has your Mauser extra uh, bolt release to take your bolt out. That's three pretty dang solid firearms to make yeah, one out of. Very ingenious it's idea. It's all Mauser design. Now, if you look at that rear sight, what's that remind you of? Looks just like a BAR. Yep. Okay. The old wing system. It, yeah, it looks just like off a of BAR. Yep. You. And then your safety is just like your infield safety. It is. It is. It's got a, they designed that bolt, especially with it being a bigger rifle, they designed that dog leg in that bolt so you can still do that quick bolt. Yeah, right. I like that. I like that a lot of these guns you see where they uh, – it's almost like the bolt handle was a, was the last thing that they designed. Right. They yep. designed the whole rest of the rifle, and they're like, oh, this bolt handle's in a weird spot. we got to bend it in a funny way to get back near the trigger. We were talking before the podcast about 17, and it's a pretty forgotten rifle. A lot of people don't really know that they exist. And, totally. I didn't even... And um, they never get a lot of press. Yeah. Fine rifle, though. And one thing that, like, in the last podcast I had mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a, a closet fan of sporters. So guns that were military rifles that were then brought back and repurposed because it just it's just something interesting to me that we did that as a nation. Like, we had all these arms that... We either captured or, or no longer needed from our own arsenals and armories, and well, instead of destroying them or otherwise, they were distributed to the public for hunting, for home defense, for recreation, or whatever. And the 17 went on to become a commercial firearm called the Remington Model 30. And the earlier 30s were, in fact, just 17s with the rear sight removed 
and then you know sporterized. And and so the earlier ones were cock on close. The later's became cock on opens, um, and they were actually. Was oh, that that one? I showed you that on Gunbroker, I think one time a room. Yeah, model thirty. Model thirty. Right? Yeah. Yep. And so, like that to me is is one of the cooler ones because. Golly, we had all these rifles. We didn't know what to do with them. We certainly weren't going to destroy them because it was a good rifle, and you can do a lot of things with a good rifle. So let's sell them to a commercial manufacturer and have, mm-hmm. them, have them repurpose Definitely. it. Like, Man, that's, that's, you just, that's the way to do it yeah, right there. You just don't see that anymore. So yeah, I, one, of the, one of the big controversies about this rifle is this is the rifle that uh, uh, Alvin York got the Congressional Medal of Honor with. Yeah. Not this particular, but this, this one. Yeah. You know, depending who you talk to, his unit was originally... I think issued these, but there's something if you read his uh, memoirs that he he didn't like the infield rifle, so okay. he traded it for an O3. So, but there's a lot of debate which one he actually used. Oh, okay, mm. huh? Another cool fun about this one: we have a project we're working on is a 19, uh, I mean 1897 trench gun, mm-hmm. uh, shotgun, trench gun. Ooh. Another cool thing is that they use the same exact same bayonets, so I can just take oh, that bayonet off that rifle. Say we're in World War One, wanting to sweep a trench. Say the guy that has the shotgun forgot his bayonet or something back at camp or anything, I'll give him my 1917 bayonet. He's good to go to storm that trench. A shotgun with a freaking bayonet. Yep. It's a lot for turkey hunting. Oh, <laughs> the best part about it is when your calling gets really good, use the bayonet. Yeah. They conceived that in 1897. Got what? On. Trench gun. And they were used, a uh, guy I work with was in Vietnam, all the way from Vietnam to Iraq. He was in Vietnam, and he was given an 1897 yeah. trench gun. Yeah. No joke, seriously? No joke in Vietnam. Mossy's Model, model 12. Model 12. Vietnam as well. Mossy's making some new-ish versions yeah. of them. I, yeah. I don't, do they still do the same thing where you can just hold the trigger down? I can't imagine. They no. Do. That's, no, that's, that's, a, long gone. that's very uniquely <laughs> 97 and Model 12. If so. only. <laughs> right? Very, uh, very neat. Is that And that last one, this, the 17, you said that's that's also 30-06? Yes. 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 Okay. Yep. So it's like a 30-06 Enfield. What's not to love? So we'll get in now. We'll get into the Axis powers. Bad guys. So this is one. Bad guys, cool guns. I this is admit. one that's very, I say crudely made. I know a lot of people will agree with me. This one gets a bad rap because of its history. It is a 1891 Model 41 Carcano Italian rifle. That thing looks like a, it's like the thinnest rifle we've seen yet. It's like a stick. It is. It's very thin. Um, this gets the bad rap of being the style of rifle that Lee Harvey Oswald Killed Kennedy. Yeah, with. that was a thirty-eight. Thirty-eight, which would have been the carbine that had a little scope on top. But yeah, this is a very, I say, crudely built gun. Um, fires the six point five cartridge, basically six point five Creedmoor, just of the nineteen forties. Yeah, six and again, five of the 1940s. one that does not get good press. Correct. Good cartridge when done right, not done right in that rifle necessarily. Yeah, this one. The bolt isn't the smoothest bolt in the world. It gets hung up a little bit, but... It's a control feed. It's a control it's a really feed. really tight extractor. So it, mm. we forgot to grab it, but it runs off a little clip-type mechanism. So it runs off a six-round clip that sits in there. In block. In block. Very similar to Grand Style, but single feed. And once you load that sixth round into the chamber, it fall, the clip falls out the bottom here. Oh, really? It's a very ingenious... And so... You said that the cartridge wasn't done well on this particular rifle. Is that just because, what was the twist weight wrong? No, or was just, the, the, the rifle, the cartridge by modern standards is a really good round. Okay. Like if you had a good bullet in there and you loaded it with good propellant, the Carcano is not dissimilar to a 260 or Creedmoor or even a 6.5 Swiss, um, but the, the rifle doesn't know justice. There's yeah. never been a good via, or commercially viable rifle chambered in 6.5 Carcano. Dude, these just weren't that great as far as like, like I shot this one yesterday at 200 yards and I hit maybe a 10 inch piece of paper at two times out of six shots. Yeah. 
Look at that delicate little clip. Wow. That's pretty neat, though. That is. Yeah, and it just whoop, drops out the right at the bottom. Yeah. And you're ready to go. The, where do the, how do the rounds fit in here? So other rounds, they just stack up vertically right in they there. Gotta get, you spread it apart yeah. a little yeah. bit. you got to bend it a little bit. They'll start it, and then you open it back up, and they just sit vertically. Gotcha. Kind of gotcha. like your stripper clip you would see for your 03. If you yeah. yeah so, but yeah, that neat. one's made in 1943. Skeletonized. I don't know if that was actually the, was the intention to make it lighter weight by skeletonizing it. No, it kind of helped with uh, the weight, especially, and yeah. also um, easier to get rounds in and dirt. If you drop it, dirt's going to fall out a lot like less. Dirt can get in, but it can also get out. Correct. The, that one's got some cool siding systems that are kind of a carryover from the 1891 model that this one's been shortened a little bit. Mm. Only goes out to 1,000, probably I would assume meters. But also cool thing, it's got it's flipped over and it's 200-yard battle site. Oh, yeah. Right now. Wait, what now? If so with this flipped, yep. You have oh, that little, a thing, a notch right there. It's two hundred yard battle site. Oh, just like when you're at your straight up your war site. Where you're, correct. Okay. Um, right now it'd be in the three hundred yard, and then every click would be a hundred meters okay. after that. Okay. Huh. All the way up to a thousand, and then all the way over to two hundred. There's a lot of design cue to this. It's not dissimilar to the Mosin. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could it see is. That, yeah. that. Yep. Similar in many ways. It's a handy gun. It is. Yes, it is. It yeah. is very handy. Lightweight. That's, that's what I like about it. It's, it's super svelte. Yeah, it's a light, slender rifle. Yeah. yeah. Very if neat. only it was apparently done well. I don't know. I, it's No, just speaking again to the cartridge and its, its actual performance is what it's capable of. It's just not Yeah. somewhat uh, It's underwhelming in there. Hmm. So the next one we got is the German. This one's actually a Yugo. Yugo Capture. Yugo Capture that's been re-stamped and everything. But um, a... K98 style rifle, eight millimeter Mauser, which would be this one. We actually have been we convert to seventy brass. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, we yeah, cast really. our own bullets for because it it's so much cheaper to shoot it yep. that way. Hmm. But a lot of these, the early ones were carryovers that they cut down. So it was actually the K98 model K for carbine. Right. Doesn't look like carbine. K for carbine. Yeah, exactly. When you're German. When you're German. Kurtz. Exactly. Kurtz. <laughs> Kurtz. <laughs> Kurtz means short. Yeah. yeah. So what they did is they basically took, if we were to have an original one, the original one had the early roller coaster site, the old one from Carryover, but probably the most recognizable action on the market still oh, is yeah. the Mauser action style Still action. very, very relevant. You can see how the 1917 got its Carryover, taking your bolt out. But yes, very sweet shooting rifle. But yeah, these were so many countries after the war picked up all the rifles that they would have had and just converted. So this one, yeah, this is an early Yugo. So all they did is they completely wiped off all the German markings off the receivers and restamped it with the Yugo crest and some other Yugo writing. There are spots you can tell. They're waffling up, Sam. That they're waffling up, Mark. There up we go. That rear side. Right over on that side. If you guys want to take a look, there's some German eagle marks on that left oh, yeah. side right underneath the ladder site. Yeah, it gives you the chills. It does. It, but, so funny, with reenacting, we do both do World War II reenacting, and we see the guys do German out there. Yeah. And funny thing is, they take it more serious than we do. Yeah. So when we are out on the re uh, reenactment battlefield, they're actually speaking in German. Yeah. Serious. They take German reenacting to a whole nother level. Now, we, yeah, you can, as you can see, we do American to a, a big level, but the German, the guys do German, a whole nother level. It's, it's, it's a, you know what, um, though? It's, it's an extraordinarily important part of, Global history. Correct, yeah. yeah. And for most of us sitting at this table, I had family, I'm not going to say on both sides of the war, but a lot of my family hails from Germany and Austria and as well as Hungary and Russia and that kind of thing. And, and it is a, a remarkably significant thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I certainly don't fault anybody for it. I had a customer um, who 
collects Nazi memorabilia. His his entire collection base of firearms is Nazi. Interestingly enough, he's Polish. His family history was on the you know the unfortunately oppressed side of that conflict. So he's got everything from Mausers to Mauser snipers to Lukers to P38s mm. to you name it. But um, very nice rifles. So many fine guns, old and new, built off of this action. So. This is what Ian's cigarette rifle was based correct, on. Correct, right? correct, yeah. correct. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you can tell it's okay. very, very. Yeah, similar. the action is yeah exactly like what Ian's has like, and yeah, just imagine taking that rifle and converting it to what he has, and just imagine the work that had to go into that. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, and to make that lifter system that they had, the tube yeah. fed, and geez, some about this, some about this gun. When you look at it, it looks, uh, it looks like a bad guy gun. And I, to me, I don't know what it is, and I, I don't know if it's because it's got like uh, when you look at the receiver and you look at the, and you look at the portion of the foreign that goes out to the end of the barrel. Like there's a lot of metal and and different angles and kind of just like bad guy looking lines, yeah. you know. To it looks like the it looks like the gun that a bad guy in a movie would have. It's, I don't know. It's I think it's interesting because a rifle will set up to be self-sustaining. The yes. the uh, metal disc in the back is the takedown tool for the bolt. Um, this guy right here, you yeah, know? yeah, yep. the rear, yep. The well, way. Th- how would you? How would you use that? So once you take the bolt out, um, basically what you do is you. If I'm not mistaken, I'm taking it apart. I, right. I Doesn't it depress the spring? In yep. I believe, yeah, yeah. it depresses the spring. It gives you instead of putting your firing pin on a hard surface like this, you put your firing pin down the hole and you can push down and remove the cocking piece. Oh, so yeah. The rifle is rem- like remarkably over engineered. Well, it's German, so um, right. <laughs> but but if you look at that rifle there. Much like that the is Sham-wow. the modern American hunting rifle. Yes, your yeah. Remington, yeah. you know, your Remington, your Winchester is all Winchester, based right yeah. off that. That it is. That it is. Oh, I don't know. In this figure configuration and form, to me, it just looks like a bad guy again. I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. And I don't. I don't say that in like a bad way. Like, oh, I don't like it. I just say it in like, I mean, it looks really cool. It just is. And you can still get these, the yeah. new ones, the Mitchells, which have a, the Mitchell Miles. You can still get them for a decent price yeah. if you want a nice shooter. Dad do a collection. You can I see them all the time. Wow. They're a fun gun to shoot. Eight millimeters not the easiest ammo to get, but I had a I had a class in high school. Unique. I can't remember what it was called. I believe it was called independent learning, and you had to assign yourself a project that you did mathematics and, and science and a technical skill and an art and all that. And so I worked it with my my teacher. She was wonderful. I, her name escapes me, so forgive me. I restored a ninety eight Mauser from like pickup to arsenal condition. Oh, wow. I still have the gun. And so I found a, it was a check capture, uh, recrested and all that, and, and went through everything. I had a welding instructor, uh, Mr. Gould, if you're listening, thank you for everything. After hours, we pulled it apart in the welding class, sandblasted everything, cleaned everything out, re-blued it. He had a bluing tank and kind of gave it a, a parked look. It was blued, but it was parked look. Um, and then um, redid the stock. I bought a stock from Numeric. Uh, I got new metal. I got... All the little, you know, gadgets and, and buttons and things that were lost over the time or over time and, and brought it back to like Dude, as new condition. You know what's sad is that to think of a kid going into his high school and being <laughs> like, Hey, I want to redo a gun. I'm gonna bring it into my shop class here at school. I mean, to think of that nowadays is like such a faux pas, but it, right. it shouldn't be. No, it and it wasn't. That's and, so cool. And it was. It was it was really a very, very important uh thing for me, especially at that time. And and uh to to credit my instructors that I had who got it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't for some sort of weird, insidious motive. 
it was like restoring an old car, sort right. of. But yeah. it, it was bringing back an old rifle that was a battlefield pickup. And I have the original stock, totally trashed. I mean, impregnated with oil and chips missing on it. And it looks like you would expect a new Mitchell's to come out of the mm-hmm. box. So, wow. It was pretty neat. Wow. Yep. All right. And the last axis, main. Now, these are, let me rephrase from since the very beginning. These aren't every rifle that they would have used, of course. Yeah, yeah. These are the main infantry rifle that your Joe Blow private would have had out on the battlefield. So this is the Japanese Type nine, Type mm. 99 Arasaka. Oh, I'm super stoked about this one. So this one's got some cool features to it. Um, you're probably hearing the metal clang around. This is what's called the dust cover. And there's speculations that a lot of guys threw them out when they were, because it makes noise. The From what some videos I've watched recently, they is not true. They were kept on the rifle because the Japanese soldiers were very proud of their heritage, especially with having... Well, it was the property of the emperor. Exactly. The property of the emperor that they looked up oh, to as a god. Oh, this firearm was, yeah. Yeah, because this one's been ground, oh, unfortunately. It doesn't have the mum It does not have anymore. the mum. Okay. hasn't been detestly grounded. This one's not terrible. I've seen some really bad ones. But yeah, this, of course, uh, it's a 7.7, so I'm pretty sure it's a 3.11 diameter bullet. Now, what is the, mu- the mum, you said? So the chrysanthemum, a flower, okay. uh, was a, a symbol of the empire at that time, okay. and all the all the Arasakas had that on there. And actually, I think it was all the arms. All, all, all the, the arms, equipment. Yeah. 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 equipment yeah. Wow. And then post-war, either as a sign, was it a sign of dishonorment, or was so, it a sign of, of like... I know um, the U.S. did them. MacArthur ordered it after the war to... They ground the moms ground all off. all the moms yeah. off. So this oh, was yeah, a yeah, U.S. Okay. ground off. Yeah. So it More was... likely. It was just a flower that was on right. there. But okay. yeah. of such significance to the Japanese people that, like, this was the ultimate dishonor. Right. Wow. So, was grinding that often? That I mean, could you... I'm speculating. Is that just kind of like a little kick to the you-know-what? Yep. Well, it, what it was, it was an agreement, I think, uh, the U.S. government MacArthur made with the Empire. Well, when you soldiers surrender, we will grind the, the logo off of the Empire. If a Japanese soldier knew he was going to get captured in the field or something like that, a lot of times he took his bayonet, X through it. So you'll see him out there with just an X through the bayonet. That's when the Japanese soldier did himself... This is one they did, the U.S. did, on a, on a belt grinder okay, at okay. some kind of surrender. Yeah. So in some, I'm just trying to this, so in some ways it was out of respect that it was ground off. Correct. Okay, gotcha. Hmm. The dust cover thing is very, very interesting. I mean, because when you pull it back, when you pull the bolt back, it looks like a very normal bolt gun. But when it's pushed forward, a dust cover, I mean, it goes over everything. Mm-hmm. It's like the original, hmm. the original dust cover. And, and this it, is, it will operate without it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. Um, this is actually based off of Mauser action. Mm-hmm. Nobody, okay. a lot of people don't know it because it uh, still has your bolt uh, release. I mean, get your bolt out and yeah, flock on close like an infield. Bolt, bolt yep. release. Um, another crazy thing the Japanese and put on them. Your regular ladder sight has what's called aircraft sights. Early oh, war. Wow. So this one, what the Japanese intended for was for the soldiers, they could shoot down planes. Okay. You lead so it like in duck hunting. For, yeah, for those. <laughs> <laughs> For those listening, I need to get he some flipped, of those. Up, <laughs> flipped up the rear ladder sight here that's just forward of the receiver and or the uh, the ejection port, and then the rear ladder sight then kind of had like these two field goal post things off to either side that now flipped down and it went straight out. So for for leading an aircraft, yeah, it's and that's early war. So yeah, you would have seen those a lot of times. You see them broken off. Yeah, yeah. they're so so flimsy. That's of, cool. Of that most of the still intact. Of most of the Arasakas that I've handled. Very, 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 very few have both intact, if yeah. any at all. Well, a lot of people laugh at the aircraft sites. Well, you know, they're they're 
everybody thinks, well, they're going to be shooting at P-51 Mustangs. They weren't. When this rifle first came out, they're in Indochina. They're in China fighting, which would have been old biplanes. Yep. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been one guy shooting at the plane. They would did volley fire. So if they're all leading, now you've got 50 rounds yeah. going toward that one yeah. slow-moving plane. Yeah. Well, I picture it like, you know, comparing it to like maybe a modern long-range rifle scope where you've got that horizontal mm-hmm. crosshair yeah, with, exactly. you know, yeah. essentially a lot of windage data. They've just got some... And, like, and these are marked, I think... Aircraft. One to three. Oh, yeah. Well, one and two and three. I, I don't know if that's meters or what that... There's not much new in the world. It's all just, you know, advancements upon what's already existed. It's just mathematics. Repackaged. Yeah. yeah. It's just mathematics. They know yeah. time and distance. This one's also got a cool feature called the monopod. It's kind of like a precursor to the bipod. Look at you that. Could oh, man. Set your so rifle down just, and just help shoot it. I don't see them very durable. I mean, more. it's just, it's like, it's like a... Better than sharp stick in the eye. Exactly. Yeah. Better. Exactly. That it is. I don't even know how to do Like, what is that? Like a... Uh, coat hanger. Bent coat yeah. hanger, yeah. But it flips down and then and flips just back up. Right back up in there. So this is... the rifle. This is the one I was talking about, how they disobeyed the Geneva Convention. So if you look at this bayonet, it's super long. It's a large. Very long. And this is over the... I think it was too. 10 inches, if I'm not mistaken, but the Geneva uh-huh. Convention call for. But yeah, this one is over that inch, over that length, and so it's against the Geneva Convention. But it's a very long and crazy bayonet mm-hmm. if you think about it. It's a fighting tool. It is, yeah. Yeah, and so one one thing about the the Japanese, especially in World War II, is they they were all in, like chips on the table were were fighting. Oh yeah, and so they were they were prepared to to fight by by hand, by arm, by whatever. And so it was it was designed as a fighting tool. Hell, they still carried katanas yeah. and wakasachis in mm-hmm. up until World War II, and some of those were legacy arms too from from generations past. Some of the higher end, or higher ranking officers, those katanas could have been built in the 14th and 15th century. You know, it, it's unfortunate that the Japanese. I know I shouldn't say unfortunate, but you know, being the the losers in a war got a bad rap. Yeah, you know, yeah. a bank making cheap stuff they didn't because this is one of the first guns got a chrome bore, chrome bolt face, mm-hmm. so really like cleaning for jumble. I mean. Wow. Really good stuff. And it was built. I mean, yeah, look at I, that gun. You got a chrome-lined bore. It was built yeah. for the region, too. I mean, yeah. these are these are island-dwelling people surrounded by salt water. They built an yeah. arm that was with a dust cover, you know, to prevent sand from getting into the action with yeah. the chrome-lined bore to prevent corrosion and to up, I don't, upkeep accuracy. I don't envy whoever had to fight the Japanese. I, they Certainly. They'd have been oh, a scary not. people to fight. And this is, as yeah, as my dad was saying, this is probably one of the strongest actions yeah. ever. Yeah, so explain, we were talking about that, how, you know, a lot of these modern cartridges nowadays have these high pressures and people need to make rifles to withstand high pressures. And the Arasaka here was doing that a long time ago. How, explain how that So after the on. war, I don't remember who did it, but the June government, Hatcher, I, think. I, I believe so, the government got their hands on a ton of Arasakas and built basically test guns to try exceed the max pressure of the receiver. I can't remember the numbers. They I got think they did double charges. I mean, complete yeah. double charges of rounds and, and still not blowed up. I, from what I've read, I think 100,000 PSI over yeah. that. Jeez. It was incredible the steel that these were made out of. It was just amazing. And keep in mind, when we think about the Japanese, what they're known for, it's yeah. steel. Ex- exactly. I mean, they have katanas that, again, were used for hundreds of years. Oh, sure, yeah, like their knives and yep. swords and stuff. I, I mean, the particular grade of steel that comes out of Japan is superior to almost all things. So That's a good point. I didn't yeah. think of that. Yeah. So we're going to jump real quick. We'll jump back to kind of U.S. something. Um, so this is actually kind of a cool piece here. This is a 10-inch M1 Grand bayonet 
but it's actually a cut down. So the way you can tell, this would have been your full 15-inch um, bayonet that they cut down to the 10 inches to help mm. with the Geneva Convention. The way you can tell, if you look at that blood groove, the blood grooves are in the, all the way to the point. Okay, yeah. The newer ones, the ones after this, that were the standard 10-inch, stopped about right there. Okay. Yeah, this one you can see what they did is they cut it down and just kind of angled off the corners. What, what did the blood groove do? Oh, I'm I, glad you asked. I, Jim, don't, that was I don't know. Facilitated what, the flow. Exactly. Facilitated flow. Yeah. Oh, because if it doesn't have one there, then and then the knife itself is blocking th- blood. Oh, okay. Whew. Yeah, that's a. I man, I get. Ee. You think of all the guys at U.S. Ordnance and what they thought of, like exactly the minds on those guys. Yeah. So now we'll jump in. These are. Can, some, I, can I ask one quick question about the? Definitely. It was the air soccer, right? That was the last yep. one. It almost looks like I keep asking questions on how to load these things, but. It almost looks like it's got like a just a hinged foreplate like you would see on a bolt action rifle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of them did. I mean, even the original Low Three did. Uh, they all fed off stripper clips, and when you went to unload them, it ain't like you see now, guys. Just keep racking it to the empty thing. What you do, you spring load, you bop, drop the bottom of the floor plate, and then you unload that way. Okay, mm-hmm. so that did load by a stripper clip as Correct. well. Then correct. Okay, it did. which mm-hmm. are, the stripper clips for those are hard to find. Yeah, airsoft strip clips aren't. They're hard to find. Hard to find. Are hard, very hard to find. So the next one we'll grab would be the... These are now neutral guys, you were saying? Yeah, so these are some... I decided, we decided to bring these because these have some cool stories to them. So what this is, this is the Swedish M96 Mauser. So uh, this one came around in the 1896. Um, so the Swedish people are very passionate about their shooting as well. Same thing with um, Germany and Switzerland, a lot of those countries. So when this rifle is actually designed... It was designed for multiple countries to use. So Switzerland would, I mean, Sweden would have used it as well as Norway would have used it. Later, they decided to change some stuff up, and Norway went with a Craig-style rifle and okay. actually a 6.5 bullet as well. So yeah, this is a 6.5 by 55 Swede, so very similar, more of your early 6.5 Creedmoor. So yeah, this one's a very sweet shooting rifle. This is considered the king of the Mausers, if a lot of people think about. Okay. Very smooth bolt. Just this is... King yeah. of the Mausers. Appropriate sized actions, too. If you look at the actions itself, they have metal where you need it, nothing where you don't. It's the right size, whereas like the 98 is a large action. But uh, Is this the one where there's like, uh, now I know one of my brothers bought some kind of an old Millsurp rifle, and he got the one where there's like a butt plate that swings to the side and people would put stuff in there. So that probably, if I'm thinking right, that's probably a Swiss. Oh, K31? Would that be the K31? Would that be the... No. Where they put the soldier oh, put his name? Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yep. what it was. Yeah, we'll okay. get, yeah, we'll get okay. to that. Okay, yeah. never mind. I get my Swiss and my Swedes mixed up yeah. all the time. <laughs> um, so this is these have this Swiss people have. I mean, the Swede people have kind of a cool story and why they didn't fight in the war. The reason why is their location. They were in such their location where they were located at. If they were tried to invade anybody or anybody was going to invade them, one of the other countries. So, for instance, Finland. If Finland was to invade them then more than likely rushed. I mean, Germany would have invaded uh, Sweden. From the other side. From the other side. So it's like if, I, if we went east to fight, then somebody's going to come in from the west. Correct. And if we go west, and so, yeah. Same thing with the, like the Soviet Union when they invaded Finland finally, then worked their way up into, they would have tried to work their way into Finland or Sweden to try to get to Germany. Germany would have came right back at them. So they never, they stayed neutral during the war. Yeah. It was one of those countries... I don't know if I would want to be in or right because you're, you're like you're like <laughs> you're between two bulldozers coming towards each other. So. I, I was going to ask him. Mean, Not they, a good did, place to be. Did they just stand in an outward facing circle like a group of threatened muskox? So yeah, these uh, another thing about these cool about the M96s, they were lent to uh, Finland. 
So a lot of these rifles were sent to Finland during the Winter War. So the way you can tell, this one doesn't have it. On this one side, there'd be a SA and a block. And that's the way it's Finnish, I mean, Finnish for Finnish Army. Mm. It's very oh, cool. Oh, okay. But yeah, they were sent to Finland, multiple countries. So the king of the, the Mausers, huh? Mm. Now you said that was primarily because of the, how smooth the action was? Just smooth how the action. Just how it was made. It's, it's a cock on close, so not standard Mauser action you would yeah. think of. Well, this has been made by Mauser. Made company. by Mauser Company, yeah. Okay. When, when I like, uh, if you look at any late 1800s Mauser, the machine work on them is just incredible. E- everything's stamped, numbers matching. I mean, look look at the machine work on that follower. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's beautiful. Yep. And then the the uh, the crest on the follower even is just yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty fantastic. Wow. A lot of really nice, um, you know, again custom builds done on on a Gustav. So that's ah, oh, they mm. they are a nice rifle, fine cartridge too. As far as six fives go, very smooth shooting. Yeah, very light recoil. If you if you want a if you want a high step and six five cartridge, uh, look no further than the uh, the six. They're still suite. making, I believe, modern guns and still in six. Oh, absolutely. Suite. I think Remington was doing it for a while. And yep. Oh, fine gun, fine gun. Funny thing Every I like about it, the looks... bayonet looks like something you'd see out of an automotive shop. Yeah. It's, it's got kind of a weird like pin oh, system yeah. at the bottom. It's it's yeah. weird. Very weird. Now? Very modern. Huh? Very modern. The bayonet. Yeah. I mean it's got like a little button that just Oh, I mean, sure the, enough. I mean look at that. You had not that from the eighteen hundreds. Right. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And look at the steel on that bayonet. I mean it's just incredible. Amazing. Again, a, quite a fighting tool. Very yeah. nice. They put a lot of time in engineering into their stabbing sticks. They blood, did. Blood channel as well yeah. on that one. And now for probably the coolest rifle on the rack. Oh, the K31. I've been so excited. Yes. So this is probably my favorite rifle. Okay, this Um, is a a pretty badass So this is a Swiss K31. This follows in another whole family line of rifles. Um, They first had the 1886, then 1896, and then the K11. This has a little bit different action, but this is a 7.5 by 55 Swiss. I believe it's standard. Yeah, standard 308 bullet. A straight pull, so not a standard bolt action, but it's a straight mm. pull. Action. That always freaks me out, man. I think I, I remember you were saying works. how you think the Manlicher Schoenhauer. Yeah, yeah. I think this could give a run for its. Power. Oh no, he just this, this one's dog. very smooth. Oh, they are. They're, this one is very. smooth. Uh, this is no doubt faster. No, yeah, you're correct. Yeah, I mean you're you're borderlining the speed achievable with a semi-auto with a with a good rifleman. Another thing, oh, these yeah. were huh. never meant to be detachable box mags, but magazine. It's very easy to get out, um, but yeah, they were given stripper clips. Once again, Dude, we're gonna make it detachable and never use it. I've exactly. got I've got a Remington Ot six pump that yeah. has a mag that I you'd be hard pressed. I feel like if you set it side by side with that yeah. thing, I think what was wasn't the Game Master had a very similar mag? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. something like that as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, these. I think are, that's what it, I think that's what it is. Seventy six hundred or something like that. Seven sixty. Seven sixty. Some, someone's got to explain it to me definitively. And maybe other people out there feel like I do. Straight pull bolts. How is it that when you shoot, it doesn't blast back and punch your face out? Cam lever. Cam yeah. lever. Yeah, you got a cam, and then you got huge lugs. Well, show him. Show him when you when you push the bolt, how the cam- bolt so, actually rotates. So, so a watch- cam lever, almost so similar the- to that of like your charging handle on an AR, with like yeah. a, a very mini yeah. version is that. So you see, how you can see the serial number. Let me lock it all yeah, yeah. See how the serial number's at the very yeah, twelve o'clock position. Sure. You see how it fell down to the side a little bit. Yeah. That bolt actually rotated. The bolt rotates. When you did what? When, when I pulled the disengage the cam. Oh, disengage okay. that cam. It comes back yeah. a little bit. You can see how it kind of turns yeah. counterclockwise. So it's a locking bolt. So it's a locking. It Twist locks it. into that position. Wow. So it's a very sweet shoot. And you can see. And what year was this invented? So this one, in, the 30 K31 was invented 
1931. Okay, it makes sense. Um, but they were made all the way through the war and after the war. 1931, they were making stuff like that. I mean, the, the mines that had to go into making stuff so like this. So this one, I believe, is a post-war. Yeah, it's post-war. You can tell by the stock. It's a birch stock instead of a walnut. Mm-hmm. But it still fits the... What's the... Um, the little ring? Yeah, the ring So that's your basically kind of like your cocking piece that you'd have on your uh, infields and your O3s. Oh, I, yeah. So like this back here, that's is that yeah, that's your, your firing, safety? That's and your firing pin. So it's your firing pin, uh, but also it's also the safety. Okay. So what you do is you pull it out, and you turn it. Safe. Mm. Clockwise. That's safe. So I can, and then I pull it back. And Absolutely brilliant. It's insane. It's very similar, kind of like the Mosins. It's kind of you pull out and turn it to the side. Yeah. Absolutely. You shot this brilliant. one. Yes. Uh, this is my favorite. One of my favorite does it, rifles. Does it shoot very high? No, mine. Really? Yeah. Uh, when yeah. we first sighted in, yeah, it was very. Everything high. back then was a three hundred yard battle yeah. site. Zero. Yeah. And I don't know why. It's just, yeah. This one, this one goes down to hundred yards. What's really neat about these, being that they never were used in combat, they're all in great style, yeah. shape. Especially the most wear you ever find on them is on the lower four inches, where they were put into racks and stuff. Racks not only that, the guys they were using Alpine troops, so they all had snow cleats on. They'd snap their boot on that, and this pile of the stock would get warm from when they were cleaning their boots off. Oh. <laughs> And, like you mentioned, the soldier's name in it. Yeah. When they were issued, because they always took their rifles home, they put it on a piece of paper a lot of times, that soldier's name that was underneath the butt stock. Yeah, So if you yeah. buy one, that's the first thing you do is take it off, see the Exactly. Soldier. I remember this when my brother did, and he wound up trying to figure out who it was, yeah. find him, you know. Unfortunately, and, we didn't have one. Yeah, this is, I, I would assume this is probably one of the family ones. A lot of times, families were given these rifles. Okay. So, yeah, this is probably one of the, a family one that they would have had. Yeah. It's pretty, very sweet shooting. It's pretty funny when you think about those guys back then, just, ah, I'm going to clean off my boot with this thing, you know, and it's like, it, you wonder what firearms now, it's where, you know, people <laughs> just rattle can them a million times with pain or, you know, or do whatever with them or, and people in the future will be like, oh, it's all beat up because some, you know, <laughs> jack wagon was using it this way or, yep. it's another a tool reason, at the time. Another reason why the Switzerland, Swedish have never, Swiss have never been in a war is because, they are very, very, very proud of their marksmanship in their country. Everybody from a young age is taught to shoot. Majority of the, the young gentlemen fight in the army or in the military. Um, so it's and there there's ranges all over. If is you that watch, mandatory si- assignment. I don't know if it's mandatory. I know like Korea, South Korea is mandatory for all men. A certain age is mandatory. I'm not 100 percent sure on hmm. the Swiss. Very, very proud shooting culture, though. Yeah. Very, especially so, with no, where they're located. At. You would think with that kind of a shooting culture that you know you'd be like, oh, we can take anybody on, you know, and I mean, they, be kind of get. They're a, big... a small country, and they're you can get across their country really quickly, much like Finland. Finland is very similar in, in the way they do that. Like my former employer was Finnish Army Mandatory Service. Uh, he was an artilleryman. They still hold submachine gun competitions there. Like, we hold USPSA competitions. So if you want to go shoot a submachine gun competition, you go to Finland, you go to Sweden, you go to Norway. And marksmanship is like, we watch football on Sundays. Yeah. They go have 300-meter shoots. So we think of where does, like, the 6.5 by 47 Lapua come from? It was a, a cartridge designed for shooting sports in Finland. It's like, we would play football. So a lot of those Nordic countries... Uh, or Scandinavian countries, that, that heritage runs very, 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 very deep. Another thing, their ammo is yeah. just incredible. Yeah. The GP-11, the, yeah. the man standard military ball ammo is like match quality ammo yep. that you shoot through this. It's, I've, I've gotten wow. inch groups at 200 yards with yeah. this, no problem. With irons. All day, with yeah. irons. So when people say something is Swiss made, that's kind of what they're yep. they just Like a make. Swiss watch right on the dot, Swiss army knife, everything. Wow. Swiss chocolate. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, you, you know, Good you think... Know. 
you think about like yeah that strong shooting culture yeah, and yet they've yeah. never not never not they never not been in no war um but i mean is that just a like a defensive mindset like hey we're not going to get in the fray but if we did we would do a fine job of if we did or pick, pick if you want to come through here you might have to yeah do some work yeah. what is it what? i'm going to ask what an assortment here it was something. Thank you guys for yeah, no problem. no problem. This is this is the coolest thing. It's been very like, enjoyable. Like we said to everybody listening out there, this is a listener special. You know, Nick Nick is a listener of the podcast and joined us because he had some cool stuff to tell us. And Ray, thanks for coming out. No problem. What do you say? You we'll let you guys do a uh, since we're since we're already over an hour and a half here, I mean it is well worth it because we talked about some awesome stuff. Nick and Ray, you guys wanna wanna close it out with any any final uh, last calls, final thoughts or anything like that? No, I appreciate you having us. Very enjoyable. And uh, this is what we're here for. We like showing our toys off. So. <laughs> awesome. Jim, awesome. Hey, Jim, can I ask one question before oh, I go? heck yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of history here, right? And we touched on you guys doing those reenactments, which I think would be a very live-action portrayal of this history. Do people come and spectate these? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. There's, and especially from where you guys here up in Wisconsin, there's not one far away, about maybe an hour Rockford, in Rockford. Rockford. Okay, which yeah. is I think now one of the if largest. If not the, it's the second largest. Second largest in the world. Are you guys gonna really? How we, often does it take place, and are you um, guys gonna be Rockford at it? Rockford goes on every year in third week in September. Third week in September, I believe. We don't go to it because we're a little too far south. Darn it! But what Rockford is a great one, especially for Chicago people from Chicago, uh, north, southern Wisconsin. But you have people from all over the country come to it. Cool thing about Rockford is they have it's a museum that owns the property, but they have a like an occupied French village, a block of a French village, and they have battles on them, and it's really cool. Oh, so he's, seriously? Yeah, they have like a little cafe. A little I mean, thing. it's they're speaking German. They're driving German half tracks around. There's German tanks. There's American tanks. It's incredible. I mean, it's like stepping back to 1940. Oh my gosh! And there, it's not so something that's centrally located in the Midwest. There's all the way from California to the northeast to the south. There's, depending on where you're at, like in Ohio, they have a, up in northeastern Ohio, up on the, one of the lakes, they have what, like a basically a D-Day landings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's awesome. They come on actual Higgins boats. It's really cool. Down in Texas, they have the National, I think the National Pacific Museum down there. They have multiple dugout trenches built up. You have like uh, Marines versus Japanese you know, and, and a lot of people think it's just big people playing cowboys and Indians, and it kind of is, but it's more to honor the veterans that died mm-hmm. for us years ago. Yeah, and, and a lot of times they'll have an, a, a veteran will come there, and they're treated like royalty. They're, they're they ride them to the battlefield in a jeep. They get a special seat. They get announced to the crowd. I mean, it's there to honor them. Oh yeah, and, and then it's, like it's we incredible. hear we hear stories. You'll have a veteran, for instance, like in the group we re, uh, portray the three twenty fifth glider, eighty second airborne. There was a gentleman and that we, we don't know him personally, but a couple guys on our group knew from St. Louis area that was actually in the 325th gliders that would come and talk to us and tell us stories of what actually happened to that the same unit that we mm-hmm. portray during the war. And yeah, it's, it's very wild, interesting. It's amazing. It's such an important part of, of history to understand where you come from, you know, and what, what your country's had to go through yeah. to get to where it is. And it's and being that a lot of World War II so far along, you know, not too many people really remember that. Now they're starting to portray Vietnam because a lot of those guys okay, are in their yeah. 60s and stuff. Yeah. So they're they're getting honored now. Yeah. Well, it's about time those guys got honored. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and they, and they yeah. didn't I mean, get geez. that warm welcome home that a lot of the World War II guys did. So right, right. 
Well, hey, yeah, it, it's super cool. I'm glad you asked that question too, Mark. Yeah, it was a good question. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I any, was curious. Yeah. Any other final calls before we uh, no, no, before we close this I'm thing good. out? Well, hey, like we said, guys, uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, if you have anything else that you have really interesting that you'd like to talk about with us on the podcast, we would absolutely love to hear it. And yeah, anything, guns, hunting, shooting, competitions related to any of those things, uh, anything of the sort. And uh, guns are cool. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.